You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by philosophy graduate student Dylan Murray in the Department of Philosophy. We have one of those here, right? We do. Thanks awesome. for having me. Yeah, no problem. Not my pleasure. Uh, yeah, as I was just mentioning, I mostly do science episodes, so this is uh, this is going to be a new one for me. But you say you're not just philosophy. You have some elements of science in there. I have kind of a foot in uh, psychology and cognitive science, sort of broadly construed, and also getting into some research in sociology more recently. Okay, so you have a foot in there, not not a head, because that's that's an easy joke. But well, I've got yeah. <laughs> Keep my head in philosophy, uh, where the official money comes from. Okay, and then the limbs everywhere else. <laughs> That's right. So if you could just tell us in like one or two sentences, what is it that you work on and what does it have to do with psychology, for example? So I mainly work on moral responsibility and free will and the related notions of praise and blameworthiness, things in, in that vicinity. And so there's a connection with respect to just what things affect our moral responsibility, that we need to actually go do the relevant empirical work, I think at least, to find out sort of what the threats are, whether they're real, where they're coming from. Okay, you said so many words right there. I heard praise, I heard blameworthiness, and then threats. Okay, these all sound different to me, so we'll have to break it down a little bit. What Are those all part of one concept? No, not necessarily, though you might think that they're pretty importantly connected. So you might think, that you're only really praise or blameworthy for things that you're morally responsible for. And you might think, though this is even more controversial perhaps, that you're only really morally responsible for those actions that you have free will with respect to. Okay, so you can't be blamed for something that you didn't have any choice in the matter. So if I wanted to say things like people taking other people to concentration camps because they were ordered to, where does that fall on that spectrum? Uh, well, that's yeah, that's definitely one of the questions uh, in the in the mix. Okay, so how did you get interested in this? Were you just were you just like being blamed for everything by your siblings <laughs> growing up, and you're like, you know what, I need to find out why this is happening? That's right. Academic research interests usually, you know, have have some sort of roots in early childhood, probably. No, in my case, I. As an undergrad, didn't really have much of an idea going in what I wanted to study. Gravitated toward history and then political science early on. And then a combination of things sort of happened. Roughly going into my junior year, I sort of realized that it wasn't so much the political science aspects of political science that I was more interested in than political theory, which already basically is political philosophy in a way. And around the same time, I started becoming very interested in this sort of combination of neuroscientific work on what were traditionally thought of as philosophical topics. So the nature of consciousness, also the nature of moral judgments, things like that. There had just started to be some recent work on, and I had recently learned that I wasn't going to be able to go on one study abroad program realized that one of the study abroad programs I still could go on was the Budapest semester in cognitive science, which was basically a crash course in that entire field in all of its sub areas. And so I went on that and uh, the rest is kind of history. Came, came back from study abroad, decided to major in philosophy, and here I am. So have advancements in technology played a role in sort of this 
neuropsych perspective on these big questions? Is that is that where that advancement's coming from? I think so, yeah. So traditionally, you know, the philosopher has been seen as this person who just sits in their armchair and, you know, thought is the primary tool that they're using to investigate the things that they're interested in. And more recently, you've had some people, so-called experimental philosophers for one, start to use the methods of the sciences to address philosophical questions. Still a relatively new research area, fairly controversial, but you've had people start to use sort of the methods of social psychology in particular, so survey response format uh, type studies, but also things like fMRI and other methods of, of the cognitive science to address traditional philosophical questions. Armchair? I thought it was a hammock. <laughs> the hammock the hammock when you can get it, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so do you in particular consider yourself to be one of these experimental philosophers? I will count myself among them as long as that means that I still get to be a plain old philosopher as well. Yeah, no, of course. I'm not making any uh, calls <laughs> on that. I think that's all on you. Uh, okay. And remind us where, I don't think we've mentioned, where did you get your undergraduate degree? At Kalamazoo College. Kalamazoo. A liberal arts place in, in West Michigan. Okay, I was going to say, that was my next question. It's the word we've all heard of, Kalamazoo, that's, right? That's but, right, yeah. <laughs> okay, Michigan. Awesome. And then what brought you out here to Berkeley? You know, it was kind of the, the best place that I got into and the one that seemed like it would be the best to spend, you know, upwards of seven years out <laughs> So it's not just like the fact that we have great weather for hammocks and... That helps. The weather <laughs> certainly helps, though. It was mostly quality of the program. No, no, I believe you. Of course. Of course. So, okay. Experimental philosophy. What are some of the methods that you use in particular? So a decent amount of the work that I've done presents people with, and of course, depending on the condition that the subject is randomly assigned to... The vignette will be different, but often we'll give them some sort short story about, say, a particular person or a set of people, and we'll describe some, you know, sequence of events that occurs within that vignette. And then we'll ask people some judgment about, you know, did the person act with free will in that scenario, or did they know the proposition that they were said to you know, that they asserted it within that vignette, things like that. And then we compare compare responses across conditions. So how do you take into account all of the different elements of that person's background that might play into their response? Well, that's a good question. Recently, there have been quite, I mean, there's been a lot of, a lot more interest than there was, you know, even 10 years ago in, so gender effects and other effects, you know, that are coming out of sort of demographic variables. Most of my work has not been so concerned with controlling for those differences, so long as those differences don't seem to be driving the effects that we're more interested in, I'm kind of usually happy to to just chalk that up to, you know, more noise. Okay, but to play devil's advocate, I was just reading an article on North Korea this morning. So, like, clearly cultural differences must play a role because I don't think that those North Koreans are going to say the same things about free will as us Americans, for example. Ah, well, that's that's interesting. And certainly for for some target phenomena, there are important cultural and gender and all sorts of other differences. 
One of the most interesting studies that's come out of the free will literature recently, though, is it seems as though there's not too much cultural variability in people's conception of free will. I mean, further, further work, of course, remains to be done, but the initial work on that looks like it's relatively universal in the grand scheme of things. So what do we mean by free will here, then? Well, that's also, I mean, a topic of considerable debate, though for my purposes, usually I'm primarily just interested in whatever sort of free will would ground moral responsibility. Though some people think that you might get free will and moral responsibility to come apart in interesting ways. Okay. Well, you got to define at least one of those things for me. So if you want to define moral responsibility, I'll take that too. But either one, can you define one of them? Just so I know. Sure. So I think usually of moral responsibility as being that quality such that if a person has it, then they're you know, blameworthy if the thing that they've done is a bad action, praiseworthy if the thing they've done is a good action, other things being equal, where potentially a lot's being packed into the other things being equal clause. But that's that's the basic bare bones of, of the notion, I think. So if we're watching like a lot of crime shows, could we think, or courtroom shows, I should say, could we think of this maybe as being like the insanity defense and that someone who is not capable of knowing right from wrong shouldn't be tried in the same way? Right, because you might think they weren't morally responsible. But what causes a lack of moral responsibility? Is it purely biological or social or... I think it can come from a number of different directions. So traditionally, philosophers have mainly been interested in the possibility of a global threat to free will and moral responsibility in the form of causal determinism, where for the philosopher's purposes, causal determinism has a very specific definition. Universe is deterministic if necessarily given the past and the laws of nature within that universe, everything that happens in that universe had to happen so long as the past and the laws remained the same. So you can imagine sort of rolling back a universe to its initial conditions. And as long as you have the same initial conditions and the same laws of nature, every single time you play forward a deterministic universe, exactly the same things will happen. In an indeterministic universe, in contrast, different things might happen. But for my purposes, I actually think that determinism is not sort of the interesting threat to be focused on. And I've started to try to move into discussing some other ones. Do you believe that everything is causally deterministic in that the universe is a set of dominoes and we hit it and that's it? No, though... So... Certainly, right, the going consensus is that at least on the micro level, things are not deterministic, right? Um, The advances of quantum physics, you know, seem to provide strong evidence that... Or even just like the random mutation and recombination that plays such an important role in evolution and natural selection. Sure. Yeah. I think there's maybe a open question about, yeah, I mean, at the sort of macroscopic level, whether things are deterministic in some interesting sense. But for me, as a compatibilist, so compatibilists think that actually, even if the universe were deterministic, putting aside whether in fact it is or not, even if it were, we could still have free will and moral responsibility. So for me, the question of determinism just doesn't even really come into focus. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Graduates here on Calix. My name is Tesla. Today, I'm joined by philosophy grad student Dylan Murray, telling us a little bit about his work on free will and blame, blameworthiness and praise and uh, the determinist nature of the universe, if you believe that or if you don't. I, or lack I'm, thereof. Yeah, yeah, or lack thereof. I, I'm sure that one is up for debate and will not be resolved anytime soon. No, presumably not. <laughs> so, okay, but you were just saying that um, determinism aside, even if everything's determined already, there's still a place for free will. So can you explain that concept a little more? The concept of free will? Or, or... the concept of free will in a determinist universe. Uh, yeah, so compatibilist philosophers have different accounts of what free will ends up amounting to such that it would be possible to have it even in a deterministic universe. And then, you know, we get different, uh, different philosophers saying different things, but some type of control over your actions that you might lack in other cases. So you might think that reflexive actions that you don't have the same sort of control over as those that you deliberate and then decide to perform. Perhaps those are not actions that are freely willed or that you would be, say, morally culpable for um, if they resulted in, in some sort of harm to someone. Yeah, I think I think that's that's the basic approach that that I would want to to take toward understanding what free will is. So is this the basis of your dissertation, the this free will and praise and blame yeah. scenario? Yep. So can you just walk us through like a typical day? How exactly, you know, in science, you know, you do a ton of reading, you form a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, and then you sort of present your results. So how does that, what does that look like in philosophy? Well, so there's certainly nothing so cut and, uh, not cut and dry, of course, but uh, straightforward as uh, the philosophical method, perhaps. But it works much the same way. I mean, you have some initial idea, typically, and then you try to think further through that idea. Often it's mistaken in some too often perhaps uninteresting way. Um, if it's interestingly wrong, though, then you can start to pursue why it was wrong um, and perhaps come up with better hypotheses to then continue to, to test in your head, as it were. Though, in my case and in other experimental philosophers' case, perhaps we can sometimes test them with actual data or against the scientific uh, corpus that already exists. So does this mean you have to read every piece of literature that's ever been written on the topic in order to make intellectual advances? Well, there are, of course, different schools of thought uh, <laughs> and in different fields about, about that. Um, I try to do as much of, you know the background as I can. And given the state of contemporary philosophy, there are certainly those who think that it should have a much more historical focus and those that think it should have a less historical focus. I'm probably somewhere in between for my purposes. I don't want to be ignorant about potentially relevant things that have been said. But at the same time, of course, there have been thousands of years of written philosophy at this point, and no one can read all of them. So... There's that trade-off between sort of doing the responsible spade work as to what's already been done while still trying to accomplish your own work. Do you typically go back thousands of years in your literature reviews, or is there a certain like decade or century that is most applicable to your work? Most of my work is fairly contemporarily driven, though everyone sort of has their favorites within the history of philosophy, 
you know, I, I go back to Aristotle not infrequently. What is it about Aristotle that makes him one of the greats? Well, for me, partly that he was as naturalistically driven as he was, you know, in comparison to someone like Plato, for instance. Most most people, I think, probably would consider Aristotle to be, yeah, one of the, if not the first great sort of naturalistically minded philosopher. And can you tell us what naturalistically minded means in this in this scenario? Well, I mean something fairly broad where the alternative would just be, you know, the super or extra natural, whatever that amounts to. So then with Aristotle, you just mean that he was using the natural world as inspiration for some of his philosophical questions? Yeah. And part of that is that he didn't treat, because there just wasn't a separation in fields at the time, he didn't really treat philosophy as being discontinuous with what we now think of as the natural sciences. Whereas other philosophers, especially later philosophers, do see a sharp distinction between philosophy and the rest of academia, as it were. Where do you fall on that uh, line of thinking? I'm very, very much in the naturalistic camp. <laughs> so you definitely think that there should be some overlap in philosophy and other disciplines and obviously in the methods that are used and, yeah, in dis discourse and all that stuff? I think we could use even more of it than we currently have, yeah. Yeah, so what would be the fields you would want to uh, mingle with? Well, so I spend a decent portion of time uh, among psychologists and cognitive scientists and neuroscientists, though I do wonder that philosophy has this, I think, interesting potential to sort of bridge much of the sciences and the humanities, a sort of unique role, uh, in fact, just because of where it's sort of placed within the academic disciplines. I think, for my money... To say a lot of what we probably should be saying to the rest of the humanities, we also need, as philosophers, to become a bit more ready to lean on sociology and what are typically seen as the softer sciences than has been terribly popular. Yeah, so what, um, what is it that you need to say to, uh, to people? You said, as philosophers, if we're going to say what we need to say, what is that? You're going to say it here? Do we get to hear well, it? <laughs> I can say part of it, though, uh, you know, the the abstract version. I think part of part of the thought is just that we could be a bit more relevant to the rest of academia than we are or have traditionally been for, say, the past hundred or so years. I think we do have all sorts of interesting contributions to make to the things that people in history and public policy do. Um we're just currently not doing as much of that work as, as we once did, in fact. So when you say relevant, can you give any specific examples that illustrate that idea? Sure, though this might take might take a little a little build up to get to, but please go okay. go for it. Yeah. So yeah, um I said before that I'm I'm more interested in, in threats other than, you know, this global threat of determinism, purported threat. In particular there's been a lot of research coming out of so-called dual processing theories that seem to suggest that we really don't sort of do the things that we do for quite the reasons that we used to think. So just, just to put a, a little meat on those bones, the basic dual processing picture is that your psychology is comprised not only of sort of the thought processes that you're consciously aware of, 
the explicit thought that you go in for when you deliberate about what to do and you think about what your reasons are and then you self-consciously, very reflectively decide what to do. There are those processes, but there are also processes that operate, as it were, entirely underneath the radar. You're typically unaware of them. They occur through associative mechanisms rather than through reasoning or rule-based mechanisms. You're typically performing those processes entirely automatically. This is where sort of implicit biases and the other sorts of phenomena that have been widely discussed over the past couple decades are coming in. Those are the system one processes, as they're often referred to. And you might worry, the more our behavior seems to be driven by those system one processes, the less it looks like we're sort of morally responsible for the resulting actions, right? These look a little bit more like those reflexive behaviors that we were talking about before. And philosophers have started to discuss what the dual processing results might mean for moral responsibility, but other fields have already started to pick up on this work in interesting ways as well. So the behavioral economists and the public policy wonks have recently started to discuss how dual processing research might be used to inform public policy. So Nudge, this famous book that was written a little while back, is all about sort of how we might shape public policy using the dual processing research. And I think that philosophers have a role to play in sort of that discussion. How might you shape public policy with philosophy? Well, so one of the examples that I quite like that comes from Nudge, this is uh, Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler's book, is this question about the default option regarding organ donation. So currently in a lot of U.S. states still, the default is if you don't check the box on your driver's license, then you're not an organ donor. So it's an opt-in system. What's been discovered, though, is that system one, right, the system that sort of operates under the radar and contains all of these implicit biases and things that potentially push us off the track that we want to be on, is highly sort of biased in favor of the default. So if you just change the default to an opt-out system where you're automatically enrolled in organ donation unless you check that box, that system gets a lot more people to be organ donors, basically because people just stick with the default, whichever default it happens to be. So Sunstein and Thaler, for instance, one of the suggestions they make for public policy research is that we just change the default on how organ donation works. That's a great example, actually. I also wonder how much, what kind of role do you think that biology, as a biology or, you know, as a biologist and as an evolutionary biologist in particular, what kind of role do you think that biology and evolution play into this? I mean, you could think of, for example, this is a this is an example I use in, with my students in human reproduction that, you know, there's not really that much evidence for a biological imperative to be monogamous, for example, in primates. Only about 15 percent of primates are monogamous. But yet, if you ask a lot of people, they would say that there is a moral imperative to be monogamous in some situations. So there's this, sort of this disjunct between our evolution and, uh, you know, what we agree upon socially. So how do you think that plays into some of these questions? 
That's a great question. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to, you know, jump at the monogamy example, but <laughs> I'll stay, stay in safer territory. Um, I think one of the places that it comes in with respect to these discussions is we know that sometimes we should trust our sort of knee-jerk, automatic, instinctual system one responses, right? I mean, if jerking your hand away from the hot stove is a system one response, right? It's not something that you sort of consciously, reflectively deliberate about, after all. Sometimes we should trust them, but other times we shouldn't, as in the case of, you know, implicit racist and sexist and other biases. And one of the big questions is, of course, when we should trust them and when we shouldn't. And I think the evolutionary considerations come in in part to suggest where that line is drawn. So you might expect things that we were sort of, right, evolved system one responses. Perhaps those are more trustworthy. Whereas newer situations, right, that we were not encountering on the savannah, those you might expect system one not to have evolved in order to address and so to potentially be sort of out of its out of its depth in those contexts in that some of the things some of the characteristics that we evolved have, uh, for other reasons and maybe even co-opted in certain situations where they're being misused or misapplied yeah exactly very interesting so do you have any, like, punchlines of your dissertation you, you want to tell us or not yet, keeping it well, secret? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I got to I gotta sell the sell the book somehow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Are you writing one? <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's sort of the game uh, with a philosophy dissertation or at least the, the more traditional approach. I guess just with respect to to that last bit that we were talking about, you know, I think I think one place that I would really like to more research to be done, and I'm kind of trying to push in that direction myself, is some nudges, sure, they look pretty benign. I mean, the organ donation example, I'm, I'm all in favor of having more organ donors. So if we want to change that default, I think go for it. But of course, there are plenty who worry about nudges becoming sort of outright pushes or sort of manipulative influences, or at least paternalistic influences as enacted by government in their own right. And I think that there is a real question in certain cases. So very recently, people have suggested that Section 8 and other public housing assistance voucher programs should start to use some of the dual processing research, and we should start using nudges for that type of public policy making. And one of the suggestions that's actually been made is that the default get changed on where people can use housing vouchers. So one of the traditional problems has been even those who receive vouchers end up moving into very similar, similarly disadvantaged areas rather than using the vouchers to move to other neighborhoods. But I think especially in thinking about how those influences on sort of people's system one, right, by changing that default really operate, are pretty important in thinking through the sort of normative question about whether we should be doing that type of thing or not, right? I mean, you can kind of see, like, changing the default about organ donation is one thing, but changing the default in a way that's potentially going to affect somebody's life insofar as where they live and who their neighbors are and what their life prospects are that's a very different beast that I think 
actually the philosopher is sort of well-placed to have something to say about. And so as we wrap up here, because we're actually out of time, what is there anything that you as a philosopher or a philosophy graduate student really want the audience to know, something that maybe they don't hear all the time, but that you are uniquely poised to say as someone with expertise in this field? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, a, this is sort of the soapbox moment, uh, you know, last word soapbox moment where, you know, just you say what you want to say. Well, you know, I mean, self-interestedly, more people should take philosophy classes. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, why is that? That's straightforward, right? Well, I mean, that's 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 how I get paid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm sure you can think of some beneficial reasons for themselves as well. There are actually um, a growing number of pieces of evidence suggesting that employers actually really do want uh, philosophy undergrads, right? I mean, it just is true for most jobs that you they don't they don't care what you've actually learned already. They're going to teach you what you need to do for that job on the job. They do want people who are just better at, you know, they've learned how to learn is the important thing. And I think philosophy does, I mean, with respect to the critical thinking components and everything, potentially a better job at that than, than other majors do. But And so if you had to sell philosophy to the public... <laughs> Uh, what would you say? Why should the public be interested in this interview or in anything having to do with philosophy? Well, I think, you know, aside from the sort of intrinsic merits of just how interesting all of the topics that we discuss are, I do think that we're coming into a certain time where we once again have more contact with the sciences, hopefully an increasing amount of that contact. And you know, we do have our inroads into the humanities as well. And I don't know. I mean, speculation in a way, but I think it's possible that we could start to provide much more of a bridge between, you know, what are typically seen of as those two kind of separate cultures on on campuses across the country into much more contact than, than they have been. Yeah, and you can uh, read some Aristotle, huh? That's, yeah. Was it, were you... In a hammock. In a hammock, I know, right? Um, can you remind me, uh, when T.H. White wrote about the sword and the stone, that has a lot of philosophical elements. Can you remind me which, do you remember which philosopher he was? I thought it was Aristotle that he was sort of drawing on because there's so many naturalistic comparisons. I don't know, actually. It's a, it's a, I don't know if you've read that or not, but... I've never read it. I, mean, I highly recommend it. It's it's really interesting. See the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, what what's the full title called? Oh, my gosh. What, the Once and Future King. That's right. Yeah. And uh, really interesting intersection between philosophy and, and natural processes and biology. So I definitely recommend recommend that. But I think it might be Aristotle because okay. just because of what that you said. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I speak too much. Uh, we're out of time here. Do you have any last words for the audience, Dylan? I don't think so. Just uh, already some... had my parting shot. You know, yeah. ma made my plug for the major and <laughs> take some philosophy classes and uh, yeah. <laughs> think about some things. And hey, hang out in a hammock if you have the time, right? If you can get away with it, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, you've been listening to the graduates here on KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson. Today, I've been joined by philosophy graduate student Dylan Murray in the Department of Philosophy here on Berkeley campus. He's been telling us all about his work on free will and praise and blame and moral responsibility.
right? Anything else that I missed? Nope. Those are all the big that's, keywords. That's about it, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's been a pleasure to have you here on the show today. My pleasure as well. Thank you very much. And yeah, well, the graduates will be back in two weeks with another episode. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to KALX Berkeley.